Whatever you call it, novel coronavirus, Wuhan virus, COVID-19, we're living through a socially, psychologically, and certainly medically important moment. We speak today with Catherine Jean Lopez, author, columnist, and editor-at-large of National Review, as well as senior fellow at National Review Institute, where she directs the Center for Religion, Culture, and Civil Society. While life, liberty, and law typically takes place at Americans United for Life in our Washington, D.C. headquarters, we're attempting to be responsible Americans by practicing social distancing. So Catherine's joining us from New York. Catherine joins us to reflect on how we stay grounded in this moment of pandemic, her terrific new book, A Year with the Mystics, and the present and future of pro-life politics. I'm Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Catherine Jean Lopez. Catherine, how you doing? Thanks for having me on, Tom. Absolutely. Thanks be to God we're alive, right? Amen. That's right. That's right. It's a, it's a strange, strange time. And uh, we've also got Noah Brandt coming from St. Louis, Missouri. How you doing, Noah? You know, Tom, I'm well from the heart of the Ozarks here in the middle of the great state of Missouri. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm so glad I still get to talk and fellowship with you and Catherine, uh, even though we're all in different places. That's right. I'm here in the swamp still. You're in the Ozarks and Catherine's in the concrete canyons in New York. It's a good, uh, it's a good mix here. So Catherine, uh, tell us, you know, in this moment you're in New York, uh, are you huddled in a hunkered in your fort? What's, what's, what's the scene in New York right now? Um, I, I am at an undisclosed location, um, where, um, I'm, I'm grateful to be a, a little, little outside the city at the moment. Um, and, and with some people who are, are good prayers. So, so I'm grateful for that. It is, um, it is, it is a bizarre time. I mean, I was, I was watching, uh, the other day, Cardinal Dolan doing Fox and Friends from, from Skype, because even though they're like five blocks away from one another, you know, the social distancing and, and all suggests that you not, you, uh, you not actually go to the studio and, and he just turned 70 and they're saying people 60 and over shouldn't be going out if they can help it. And I, I actually just was reading the, the president of my alma mater has coronavirus Catholic universities, John Garvey. Oh, wow. Just, uh, very, very strange. And he, he apparently had symptoms, got tested, now doesn't have symptoms. Um, so he may be on the, on the men there. Um, but he's in the above 60 category and, and, um, which makes everybody a little extra nervous, of course. But one thing I've been, I think moved by is see you see the news stories about obnoxious college students on spring break, but, um, the majority of people seem to try trying to be cooperative here and, and look out for, for other people. And it, it really is, I, I can't get over the fact that this is happening during Lent. And it really is, I guess, a, a work of mercy to, um, to, to, even if you're, you're a healthy young person to consider other people maybe, uh, maybe really hurt by some germ that you pick up. Yeah, that's right. You know, Americans United for Life speaks to Americans of, of all ages, backgrounds, and beliefs. And so, you know, as we look at, at this unfolding pandemic globally, not just in the U.S., you know, it's, it's important to recognize, you know, that, uh, that theology, that, uh, you know, knowledge of, of God is something that speaks to uh, huge numbers of people and, and provides uh, solace and meaning for this. So you're right, as, as Christians are celebrating Lent in particular, uh, it's a meaningful moment for tens of millions of Americans what do you think, Catherine, you know, in this time, uh, people, uh, Christians and otherwise, you know, called to, to serve their neighbors, right? Everybody's trying to look out for, for those around them. But it's tough, right, when we're told, uh, at the one hand, to be distant from one right. another, uh, at the other hand, to, to be there in solidarity. You know, how do you see that being navigated, you know, either from what you're following online or, or from, you know, where you are now? Well, what I'm seeing a lot of, both based on conversations with people and watching social media and hearing from people over email, readers and, and all, is people are p 
picking up the phone more than they they do mm. in in their common daily life. Including, I've I've heard so many stories now of um, you have an elderly neighbor next door, you can't necessarily go over, but you call them on the phone and have a longer conversation than the usual waving right from the from the driveway. Right. Um, and I I do think too, yeah, we don't all share a common faith or faith, but we share a common humanity and. Um, And we are living in obviously really polarizing times. And I mean, it was only, goodness, it was a week ago where, where people were still saying, no, this is, you know, this is an attack on Trump or, you know, this is whatever. It's a non-issue. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I think we're, we're all in the same boat here. And it was even strange to watch. It was Sunday night. It was Sunday night of all nights too that there was um, a Democratic primary debate. It was very odd because I do feel like we're in this moment, not to not to be too saccharine about it but or naive about it, but we are all in the same boat, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or a socialist or whatever. And I, I, I do hope that, that that bears some fruit. The other thing I, I have to say, being from New York, I am not a fan, to say the least, of our governor, Andrew Cuomo, who, of course, expanded abortion last year. But my goodness, actually, to watch him try to protect human lives. I think he, he, from what I can see, is doing a responsible job. I I found myself the other day praying with all my heart that this could be a moment of conversion for him where where maybe he could see because actually it was it was last last week I was on the phone multiple conversations talking about how to stop assisted suicide in New York um, because that's something that's been on the docket in in Albany and that right. he said he would support and surrogacy is another issue that that's up there you know my first sort of, I, I don't want to say cynical, but I, I sort of my my first political thought when all of this started was, well, gosh, at least it's, it's a distraction before I realized how serious I was. At least it's a distraction from assisted suicide and surrogacy. But in a in a more uh, serious way, the, the more this has become such a threat and the more that I've seen Andrew Cuomo work to protect human life, I've just thought, goodness, if this could just, just uh, the dots could be connected here, you know? Yeah, and I think um, I think that is, you know, for for those of us who pray, I think that's that's a, a definitely a, a prayer that that will not be wasted, whether or not it's Andrew Cuomo or not. I do think that that um, hearts and minds might be changed a little bit when we're all making these tremendous sacrifices to protect human life. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think as we're watching this unfold, the things that have stuck out to me are, you know, we see some headlines here that. Uh, you know, where was it, Noah? Somewhere, you know, had to stop, uh, like, cancer treatments. They had to stop certain surgeries, like uh, heart mm. procedures. But they said, you know, don't worry. You know, we're still doing abortions. Uh, mm. You know, and so it's... As in Massachusetts, yeah, they, they, they've stopped all, you know, what they consider elective procedures in the whole state. But they're considering abortion... Uh, you know, mandatory. So that's so you you can still go to the go to the clinics and have your abortion, even though you can't have uh, a myriad of other other medical procedures. But the the sort of political class and medical class in Massachusetts and in states across the country that are kind of shutting down large parts of the medical system in order to, you know, make way for what could be this influx of people with the virus. The abortion practitioners are going to keep on going. Mm. Which is really incredible. But you're right, Catherine, you know, this is a moment, I think, where, you know, uh, hearts are being spoken to. And that's not necessarily obvious right away. Right. It's it's the kind of the whisperings of the heart, the openness to it. And when you see, yeah, a Governor Cuomo, a President Trump, you know, whomever stepping up and, and serving a vital function that, you know, too often on the life issues, we see not just abdicated, but actually, you know, totally reversed from governors and from other leaders where, you know, one of the core roles of government, uh, of, of a governor, is to protect life, right? You know, the, the, founding, uh, the founders spoke to this across the board that, you know, if, if government can't ensure uh, life and, and prosperity, uh, then, you know, it really can't do much of anything else. And okay. so, you know, I think it, it does make sense, you know, as, as we see Governor Cuomo especially, you're right, he has been uh, very strong, very vocal, um, and and very fair. You know, even in in acknowledging and praising the Trump administration for uh, their handling of it. I know, um, you know, the White House sent uh, uh, what was it one of the Navy medical ships off of the uh, the coast of Manhattan yeah. uh, for more hospital beds. So it's been 
encouraging to see. And I think, you know, for a lot of folks, you know, paying attention to this, it should be heartening, right? You're seeing, you know, wait a minute, there is a role there uh, for, for governors, for politicians to be engaged in these conversations. You know, they're not just privatized. They're not just private issues. They're social issues uh, legitimately concerning all of us. Well, and we're reminded of what we need the government for, too, right? If, if we can let go of ideology for a couple of days and, and realize, oh, okay, this is, this is why we need it. Um, and um, th- this is what, what the, these roles are for. What Noah said is absolutely true, though, uh, as well. Yesterday, I, of all things, got a fundraising email from Planned Parenthood, you know. Um, and Amazing. And, um, one of his, his sign-offs was, yeah, and, and it was tied to coronavirus, of course. And they, they told me to be kinder <laughs> before before they signed off. And I maybe had, had an unchristian thought at that moment. Um, but I... Um, <laughs> It, it is it is a reminder that, that the, the obstacles are high the poison the poison is is deep in our our bloodstream it, it is going to require n- not only prayer for for those of us who pray but but also conversations you know this is this is a, a time where maybe and you can't you, you can't be um that don't hit people over the head with it or anything but but maybe maybe it's a time for the planting of seeds. You know, if you if you are locked in, in in an apartment with you know a family member who or a house where with a family member who doesn't agree with you on on a whole host of issues, or with a roommate who doesn't agree, or whatever it, it is. You know, this this um either either you're going to be playing video games or watching a Netflix, or you're going to be talking to one another, <laughs> and um and, and it may be a, a time for for some connecting of the dots to begin to happen. No, that's right. In, that's right. In all charity. Yeah, and you know we'll we'll speak more in a few minutes about you know the implications in politics, especially as the uh, Democratic presidential uh, race continues. Um, but you know I think you know I wanted to talk about you had a, a piece recently uh, titled "Will Coronavirus Change Us." And, uh, and you said, quote, for how much of our lives have we heard the saying, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger? That seems crass at a time when such a dangerous virus, you say, is spreading and taking lives. But during this religious season of Lent, at the time of the change in the seasons too, this virus that is changing the way we live for the course of weeks can also give us new life, unquote. I think that was really beautiful, Catherine. Well, I was probably preaching to myself as much as, as anyone there. Um, I, you know, it is uh, this bizarre contrast I find, um, where you, you know, fl- flowers are coming up. I was I was in D.C. a week and a half ago, I guess, and um, you started to see the the cherry blossoms coming out. I've seen I've seen pictures where they're they they seem to be in flu, full bloom now. And we're all worried about getting sick, you know, which is uh, usually it's the opposite. So. So the, there is this sort of per- perverse reality almost, um, and um, and I I did find myself just this morning thinking about 9/11 and and being in New York um, on September 11th, and um, and, uh, and 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 thinking that the the kids in the office were were barely alive when when this happened, and and in in a sense were so far removed from it. Um, you know, if, if you, if a family member, if someone you loved, if a friend of yours died, you're not as removed from it, obviously. Um, but, um, but I was just thinking, gosh, what will this look like, you know, 20 years later, because we, we will presumably get beyond this. Right. And, um, what, how will we be looking at these, this time? And will we be thinking about this time? because of some of the best that came out in us or, or will it be the opposite? And, and when I think of September 11th, I think of, um, people flocking churches. Of course, that's a complicated, um, uh, scenario right now. I also remember a very, very, like it was yesterday being on 42nd street. I was going to Grand Central Station and it was the day that the president Bush went down to ground zero with the bullhorn and the, with the firefighters. And um, he was coming back from 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 down there, and um, so so uh, the police uh, were were keeping everybody. You couldn't cross the street or anything. Do you know New Yorkers were applauding 
him, um, lining <laughs> the streets, applauding him. And, you know, New Yorkers are not, we're, we're not necessarily fans of George W. Bush, to put it. New Yorkers a, a sometimes barely look up crowd. from the sidewalk, right? Yeah. Well, there's that too. There's that too. Of course, it, it was, the whole city was kind of like awake in those days. And, 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 um, also too, if you weren't there, there were, um, you would you would see votive candles everywhere, and and on lampposts you'd have pictures of people who are missing, who of course, of course were were dead, um, but people were hoping against hope. So so there was an element where everybody was was not New Yorkish, you know, during those days. But but the idea that that all these New Yorkers would be lining the streets applauding a Republican president was was kind of almost a miracle. Um, but but there there was really a moment I lived it where where um, you know, we were all we're all, all Americans together, and I I think there there is something similar happening. Um, you know, we're not gathering, so so you won't see it in in quite the same way. But I, I think we should be paying attention to some of the stories in our own lives, um, so that we remember that this really happened. And and I do do um, hope and pray that this really is what's happening. That that people are are are. Um, you know, discovering their common humanity, um, and, uh, and, and being decent to one another where, you know, we, we really have been in a culture where not only do you have the, the polarization and the real contempt really, um, but, um, but, you know, we don't even stop and look at one another or talk to one another. And, and a friend of mine said to me the other day, you know what I'm going to do? I'm first of all, his, his, this particular friend, he, he travels a lot. Um, and his kids already are so excited because he's around so much more. (laughs) They don't know what that's about. Right. (laughs) Like why, why is daddy here? And, uh, and he said, you know, and, and I'm every day, I'm going to go through my, my, uh, address book and, and call people that I haven't talked to you in a while. Um, and I, I think, I I think if that's how we make use of this, this could be, this could be a good moment for us. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, you you look at the impact of this and families are together again, right? You know, it's like after nine 11, I think one of the, in retrospect, you know, missed opportunities of that moment was that we too quickly pivoted to sort of say, you know, well, we don't want this to have any repercussions on the economy because the economy is very important. And, you know, I understand the intuition there that the American economy drives prosperity and it does, you know, impact the material and, and uh, overall well-being of, of Americans. But we are not just an economy, right? We're not just a people with an economy. We're a people uh, first. And so I think that's a silver lining to this moment we're in, despite the huge numbers of people that are unfortunately being laid off either temporarily or perhaps permanently right now because of the uncertainty of this virus, uh, it is a tremendous gift that uh, we're able to reconnect on a personal level and, and maybe try to figure this out, maybe try to figure out uh, who we are, not just as Americans, but also sometimes as people, right, to the extent that our routines, our habits, mm-hmm. our jobs um, can serve to a degree to alienate us from ourselves even, right, because we, we get trapped in the day-to-day. And, uh, you know, it's like the, the negative stereotype, right, you you know, guy wakes up with a midlife crisis and he says, who am I? Am I just the Mm -hmm. job I've been performing? And so to be able to ask these questions, to be forced to ask these questions, obviously the circumstances, the reason for it is terrible. But uh, this is one of those examples of, you know, as as Matthew McConaughey said, you know, let's try to make some lemonade from these lemons. Uh, If you saw his video on Twitter, which was tremendous, by the way, I love love McConaughey for stepping into this moment. Um, So Noah, what were you going to say? Uh, I, I was just going to say, I, th- I think that's a, that's a great point, Tom. And I think that Catherine, even to your point, sort of talking about the re- reactions from New Yorkers after 9-11 to President Bush, I think that one other you know positive thing coming out of the crisis so far is pre- you've seen President Trump and some different Democratic governors, which he's had you know a terse or really negative relationship with, sort of working together and saying nice things. Like I know Cuomo, Governor Cuomo in New York and, and President Trump have been saying nice things about each other. Uh, and even, you know, President Trump was having a lot of sort of personal spats with Governor Inslee in Washington. And, they, and it, it seems like we've gotten to a point now in the crisis, and maybe this is just an indication of sort of how actually frightening it, it should be to us because public policymakers are taking it seriously enough to sort of per, put their petty mm-hmm. partisan, you know, divides aside and just try to, you know, make things better and help solve it. We do live in a very juvenile culture, and this has forced people to be adults. Catherine, let's shift gears a bit to talk about your terrific recent book, A Year with the Mystics. 
So tell us about this book, kind of the inspiration behind it and, and the story you're trying to tell with it. Little did I know that we could really spend a year with domestics now that we're in quarantine for heaven knows how long. Um, I um, I was actually, uh, a number of years ago, I just uh, started to read a lot of these mystic saints who um, who run the gamut. You know, I, I include in the book um, people who actually you wouldn't necessarily um, put on the top of your list of mystic saints like um, John Paul II and contemporary people too and, and Mother Teresa uh, because they had deep mystical prayer lives. Um, we just know them for, for doing stuff, but but that's actually what what made it made the rest of what we saw possible, um, and then and then people you would put on the top of your list like John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, um, but um, I made sure I made sure too that some some uh, American saints like uh, Mother Cabrini and Elizabeth Ann Seton are in there again. People who Mother Cabrini is the patron saint of immigrants and. Elizabeth Ann Seton is known for for starting the hospitals and schools in America, the the Catholic schools and Catholic hospitals. Um, but but again, this these deep prayer lives where um, if you read their spiritual journals, and Mother Cabrini, um, a, a lot of her journals are actually letters she was writing to her sisters as she was traveling to the U.S. from from Italy. Um, and, um, you just see how, um, how intimately they knew Jesus because we live in a culture where heretofore it's been hard to have a moment and, um, and, and even know how to pray, um, you know, take a few minutes of silence. I, I thought it was important to, um, put something together that was accessible and digestible. And so, um, this is actually part of a series that St. Benedict's Press has. So they have like a year with Mary and a year with the church fathers and a whole bunch of different ones. And I thought that, that the mystics would be a, a good addition to it. And I actually proposed, proposed it as something for someone else to do, because I, I love coming up <laughs> with ideas for other people, not having to actually do it myself. Um, I also can come up with a list of you of like all the experts who would be brilliant doing it. Um, but somehow I wound up doing it in the end. And I'm really grateful <laughs> because I did get to spend more than a year with the mystics. Actually, it took me longer than I was supposed to, to put together. And um, no, so no page is more than 400 words, which I think is a great thing to be able to tell people. And this is part of the reason I did it too. You know, it sounds very foreign, exotic, too hard. You know, you got 400 words a day. This is, this is doable. And I have been heartened to hear from lots of people who have been going through it either page by page or, or going in and out of it. I recommend either one. Um, whatever, whatever fits your, your routine or makes it work who, who, um, yeah, are totally finding it useful. And it gives you a good mix, I think, of different saints and holy people. There, there are only two people who are still alive I put in there. Um, one is a, a priest at St. Patrick's Cathedral who, if you get him, Father Donald Haggerty, who has a bunch of books, I highly recommend if you're looking for books on prayer during during this time when maybe you have a little more time to read. He, uh, If you catch him at St. Patrick's Cathedral, of course, now there are no public masses for the time being, but he gives like a, a little like three minute retreat during his daily masses, which is, is, is uh, very cool. You, you can always tell there, there are a bunch of Catholic kids in the office and a number of them go to daily mass and you can always tell if they, they had father Haggerty for mass because there's something a, a much, a much more reflective about them when they come back to the office. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's an, it's a powerful book, uh, especially, you know, some of the, the meditations, uh, John Paul II and, and mother Teresa, as you mentioned, uh, but I love that there's also, you know, living folks in there as well. You know, I know Noah and I were, were, were speaking about this as well. And I think, you know, even within the Christian uh, communities, um, you know, a, a knowledge or a relationship with, with the mystics isn't necessarily universal. So how would you define a mystic? You know, is it is it someone, you know, I think of it as essentially someone who um, contemplates uh, the transcendent, right? So that sees beyond the material. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. how would you put it? Um, you know, the, the catechism of the Catholic Church says that mysticism is union with God. That's the, basically the journey of our lives. And again, 
even if you're not Christian, you know, if you're if you're searching for something more, um, if you have the the sense that there's got to be something um, more, then you're you're on this journey too. And so I I think it's uh, a couple of a couple of years ago, a friend of mine had had a book, Gary Jansen. It's it's Stations of the Cross, based on Ignatian spirituality. And anyway, a mutual friend of ours wrote the introduction, and she wrote that um, the first time she met him, they were like on a park uh, on a bench in Central Park or something talking and she realized I'm in the presence of a mystic and you could almost hear like the the music in the background you know <laughs> music and uh, and and in fact I gave my own mother a copy of that book because it's a it's a nice slim little volume and I I think I gave it to her for Lent I thought she might look at it and she actually she read the intro and I don't think she read beyond it because she read the intro then she she uh the next time she sees me she says you you said that book that you gave me was by a friend of yours. You didn't tell me your friend is a mystic. And I'm like, like my head is in my head. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, that just means he prays. That's all it means. <laughs> Um, so, so part part of the reason I have now spent more money on this book than I got paid to write, <laughs> giving it to people, is because I am determined to demystify mysticism, um, and I hope the the book does it a little bit. Catherine, as as someone you know, I've I've got I've read most most of the book now, and I really enjoyed it. You know, I I come, you know, I'm like sort of a you know, evangelical Christian, as someone who doesn't come from an Orthodox or Catholic background, and like the word mystic, and even sometimes saints can be sort of like scary or impenetrable to us. Is there, you know, are mystics and saints uh, like synonymous or similar? Like, if if you if you were trying to sort of explain it to someone who just isn't familiar with the vocabulary at mm-hmm. all, uh, h- how would you lead us into it? Yeah, most saints are going to be mystics, you know, and and their the level to which their the depth of their prayer may vary but one and one of the things that that I hope is conveyed um in the book as as you go through it is that God works in different ways in in different people's prayers at different and and works in in um, one person's prayer differently at different times, but but you can see it's the same God throughout. You know, even even though it may look a little different from page to page. And the thing about you know saints and um and and the word mystics and it's 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 all the same in as much as it's it's um, people wanting to live a good life, wanting to live a holy life, wanting to serve God. You can't serve God if you don't have any sense of who he is. And um, and so we get that sense in prayer. We get that sense from from other people who love him and show him in their lives. So my my hope is with the with the this sort of primer on on mystics, that's that's an, an entryway into getting to know what what God looks like um, in in people's prayers, what what He says to people. Um, uh, sometimes, you know, you have like Catherine of Siena in there, who one of her books is is a dialogue with God. She didn't even know how to read or write, and she had to get other people um, to write down this stuff. She basically gave dictation from what she was hearing in her prayer. That's incredible. And um, and it is incredible too to see, you know, if you line up with Catherine of Siena got in her prayer, with what Saint Gertrude got in her prayer, or Bridget of Sweden, or John of the Cross. It, you again, you can see it's the same God, right? So it's not like it's these crazy people who are making stuff up because there are there are lots of common denominators here, and he wants to show us who he is so that we can live more fully in the in the truth of who he is and what we were created to be. So all the all these people who, you know, write down some of the stuff from their prayer who often often a spiritual director um somebody has to encourage them to do it or or even, you know, uh, sometimes uh say, you know, you you have to do this. Um and and they do it because they trust this person. And thanks be God they do because we all benefit from it. I don't I don't know. I would wouldn't want to have to live life without reading Catherine of Siena's letters for instance, which I'm I'm looking through during quarantine right now. You know, it's a great antidote to also the attitude that, you know, I think all of us can fall into sometimes that idea that, you know, those of us living now, you know, in a certain sense must be smarter or at least more advantaged than those of the past because, well, sort of like we're alive right now and they're not, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's just sort of that, that presentism bias. Um, but you read through uh, the lives, the encounters, the intuitions of men and women across the centuries, across the millennia, literally, 
And you realize, you know, we've talked about solidarity with one another amidst pandemic, you know, in the U.S., for instance. But you get a sort of a solidarity across time as well with with your fellow human beings, you know, your fellow men and women and recognizing, you know, that the human heart uh, has not changed meaningfully. You know, that's it, it's in a certain sense reassuring that even as we fight against um, you know, issues like uh, the expansion of abortion, you know, which is inherently the ending of, of human life as we uh, work to protect uh, vulnerable populations from things like suicide by physician or euthanasia. You know, these threats, these crises have been with us throughout time in every generation, right? Uh, you know, it's that uh, kind of that idea that Ronald Reagan encapsulated with his his remark that, you know, uh, you know, what was it? Liberty is only ever a generation away from extinction. You know, it needs to be re-encountered, uh, re reinterpreted, um, communicated uh, fresh to everyone. And, and the ability to, to intuit that, you know, whether you're a mystic or whether you are uh, somebody like me uh, is a powerful thing to see in action. Right. Absolutely. And another um, another book I'm, I'm going through um, that I've looked at before, but I grabbed the other day and I'm glad I, I, I did a, a bunch of sermons from Charles Barmeo, who was bishop during the Black Plague. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I know we're not we're not necessarily a sectarian uh, broadcast, but I know there are people who who might be Catholic and, and are heartbroken that they can't receive the Eucharist, which is a, a big deal if you're Catholic and, yeah. and you believe that that's the real presence of, 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 of Christ. There was a similar situation where they had to close the churches, but he would actually celebrate mass outside. And you've seen some of these videos in Italy where, you know, people are on the balconies singing across the way to one another. Well, because, because everything's sort of on top of, of everybody's sort of on top of one another, in in some of these neighborhoods, he was able to celebrate mass outside the church, and all these people from their balconies would be participating without getting too close to one another. Um, and but it goes to your point, Tom. It's it's the same thirst that exists today that existed then. Um, there's there's you know maybe a different germ, a different disease, um, a different poison, but um, but there's nothing new under the sun. You know, it's uh, it's great. I had an exchange recently with, uh, with a listener of Life, Liberty, and Law who, you know, identifies as an atheist. And we were talking uh, about uh, kind of the way we talk about pro-life issues. And he was kind of just expressing his gratitude for how we try to unpack things on Life, Liberty, and Law. You know, uh, his thing was, you know, he doesn't have a faith, um, but he says he's sort of tired of the pro-life position constantly being sort of reduced or distilled um, you know, because there are many people who identify as pro-life, right, who are coming from right. a faith background, whether Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever. And he says, you know, I'm so tired of people writing off the issue of, of human rights as if it's, you know, an attempt of, of religious people uh, to control or to try to, you know, assert control over other people or over society, you know, the kind of theocracy canard, Right. And, uh, and, you know, we got to talking about that um, just, you know, kind of in light of a previous conversation we had on the show with, with Hadley Arcus, which was one of, one of the episodes he was commenting on, in speaking about natural law, right, and the things that, that we understand uh, that are kind of written on the human heart, maybe that intersecting point with, with the mystics and, and their encounter with God, that, you know, all of the branches of learning, right, like medicine is one of them, yes, uh, philosophy is one, yes, theology is one, yes, you know, all of these things are, are coming from sort of the same tree of knowledge. They're, they're uh, ways that human beings intuit in some cases, study explicitly in other ways, or explore through, through things like the scientific method, um, the nature of the reality we inhabit, right? And what, it, what any of this might mean. Uh, and so, you know, when we come back to kind of the, the grounding issue of, of something like the human right to life, all of these things, you know... Uh, can and should work in harmony together to inform them. And uh, so it was just a really heartening conversation, you know, kind of, kind of coming together and recognizing this, this solidarity on the issue of, you know, whatever your, whatever your basis is for, for coming to life-affirming law and policy, they're all forms of knowledge we're intuiting. And, and we should all be able to be genuinely brothers and sisters with each other, locking arms. You know, I think of that um, incredible mm -hmm. famous photo of, of, right, MLK and Ted Hesburgh and the others, you know, marching together, uh, literally in, arm in arm um, for, for civil rights. And I think, you know, we should be able to do that more on these issues of human rights. 
Right. I, again, I, I just keep praying that, that somehow I, I, so I heard, I sort of heard a sister of life the other day, um, praying, um, Jesus just eradicate this virus. And I thought, jeepers, that's pretty direct. (laughs) Like, gosh, I wish I thought of that. (laughs) Maybe that would have solved the problem, you know, but, but, but my, my, my point in repeating it is we should, first of all, we should ask for bold things in prayer like that, but we should also be confident that like this stuff can happen, right? If, if we really do try to be honest and charitable and, um, and, and not, um, not acts like we know everything. We're just, we're just trying, trying to do what, um, what seems like the right thing here and protecting innocent human life seems like the right thing here, whether it's the beginning of life or the end of life. And, um, the more people see that, um, that we're, we're authentic about that, that it's not just a talking point. A couple of, maybe it was last summer. So there's, um, in lower Manhattan, there's a Planned Parenthood. There's a old St. Patrick's is a couple blocks away. So on every first Saturday of, of the month, there'll be a mass and then there'll be a procession, um, people praying the rosary to the Planned Parenthood and they'll, they'll stay and pray outside the Planned Parenthood. Um, one particular Saturday morning I was at the mass and as I was going in there, there were counter protesters and the counter protesters stayed, they were protesting mass. Um, like I get being a counter protest or outside the the abortion clinic, I guess. Um, again, although it's prayer, you know, so, so you're counter protesting the prayer. Okay. Um, (laughs) but here now, now we're at mass. We're literally at mass and they're protesting the mass. Okay. As we're praying for the people who are screaming and seem pretty angry outside about life, not, not just this political issue. Um, but so at one point they're, they're screaming like, you know, um, you don't, you don't care. Hey, hey, ho, ho. You don't care if women die, something like that. And I'm on the communion line, but behind two sisters of life. The sisters of life have given their entire lives to save lives, to walk with women, um, who, to walk with women who are pregnant and need help and have no support and to walk with women who have had abortions and are in misery because of it. Sometimes, Sometimes it's six months ago. Sometimes it's 40 years ago. This woman is still beating herself up and miserable about her abortion. And so you're going to stand outside and tell me that they don't care about women. Okay. Uh, You know, I wish they could have had an actual conversation. I do think that the more that we actually, you know, have to confront one another and have actual conversations, the more people who don't necessarily agree with us will appreciate, Oh, well, gosh, you know, I, they don't seem like terrible human beings and, and maybe they do care about a baby, you know, five minutes or five years after it's born. Um, and all of a sudden all the, all the caricatures start to melt away a little bit. The other thing that I think is really important is that, um, and, and Tom, I think you've been to a couple of events that I've, I've done on foster care and adoption. That's right, yeah. I think it's super important for us to not only be talking about uh, the the quote traditional pro-life issues like we're we want to overturn Roe. Yes. <laughs> want to overturn Roe. Um, want, want to keep abortion expansion from happening. Absolutely. Um, but people have to know that we care about kids in foster care too. Um, because, you know, in, in some cases, if, right, if, if abortion is illegal, some, some of these kids are going to wind up in foster care. And so why, um, why can't we make that a part of, of, um, the, the common pro-life conversation. I think we absolutely need to. Um, also so that women know that these are real options. Adoption is a real option. And it's also a heroic option. I think we as pro-lifers need to um, make sure there's no question that birth mothers are heroic human beings. Um, that's a difficult choice to have to make. And it's a difficult choice to have to live with. Um, it's a choice that should be celebrated. Um, a woman should feel good about the fact that she said, you know, I'm not ready to be a mother, but I I absolutely want this, this child to have a chance in life. And we don't do enough of that. And I think that's an important part of, um, you know, people who don't necessarily identify as pro-lifers being able to listen to us. 
No, you're absolutely right. And that witness is so powerful. You know, it's it's a weird thing when we look back in the past decade or so. You know, the Sisters of Life uh, are a great example, as you mentioned, of, of um, you know, Christians who've come together in, in service and, and in solidarity. Another uh, group are the Little Sisters of the Poor, uh, of mm-hmm. course, uh, noted you know, the Beckett's defense of the Little Sisters of the Poor um, starting, uh, you know, I, they, their persecution sort of starting under President Obama's uh, health care directives, uh, forcing them to violate their conscience. And so, you know, some of these issues you look at, uh, I think historically we're going to look back and say, why was the government concerned with interfering so much actually in, you know, uh, more or less the, the, the personal religious lives of Americans uh, because that's actually what's happening. And you're right, it should be exactly the opposite. It should be a recognition that, you know, here especially, when you look at, at groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor or Sisters of Life or others, here are people who've given everything of themselves, uh, who are actively yeah. giving everything of themselves in service to others, doing precisely what, you know, we hear from our opponents we supposedly don't do, which is provide options, provide a range of, of choice, uh, for people in difficult situations. Well, they're doing that, right? It's the same as you look at the data and you see, you know, uh, life-affirming pregnancy resource clinics outnumbering abortion clinics, you know, I think more than three to one now across the country. There are thousands of them compared to, you know, something like fewer than a thousand abortion centers now. Uh, so the reality is that these these options do exist, but you're right, especially on adoption, foster care, and, and things of that nature, we need even more, right? And I think of right. this, you know, I know we'll, we'll pivot to kind of the state of pro-life politics in a second. I think of this in light of like the the, the recent, uh, the, the absurdity, that thing about uh, Michael Bloomberg. You know, Michael Bloomberg uh, spent $500 million or something on his campaign. Oh, right. And they said, you know, uh, this was the, the New York Times editorial board member, I think, right? Who was yeah. on uh, CNN or something and said, you know, $500 million, MSNBC. you know, MSNBC, you know, $500 million. They could have given, you know, it, Bloomberg could have given every American one $1 million. Uh, you think, well, there's a, kind of a, a serious error there in the math. Um, I, I can't do math, and I, I can't tell you how much that hurt my brain. Right, right. Like that, what are you saying? But, you know, you look at it, these things. It, it, it sort of came across as like a brain teaser that, like, you would give a first-grade class in, like, critical thinking. You know, because, like, uh, they, on the surface, you're, like, work with the numbers, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, no, that makes makes absolutely no sense. Right, yeah. It's, it's, if, if there are 327 Americans, then yes, everyone could have, got, could have gotten a million. But you look at the principle of that, right? Uh, you know, the principle that I think is trying to be communicated there is that those with incredible wealth and privilege, the most fortunate among us, have some kind of obligation to uh, their, their countrymen, Right. And when we look on the life issues, the same thing should be asked of Planned Parenthood and every group that claims to advocate for the rights of the vulnerable, the marginalized, the forgotten. Uh, you know, and we should be asking, why is it, especially in this moment of a viral pandemic, that there are so many who are so eager to say it's very important that abortion centers remain open, that abortions continue. You know, there, even, there was even a push to say, you know, initially, we don't know, you know, for pregnant women who might contract the virus, we don't know what the implications may be for her child. So she should especially consider abortion as an option. Uh, this was a thing, you know, they're kind of hyping up the same kind of fears that came out during the Zika virus a few years ago that, that mm-hmm. maybe your child could be disadvantaged in some way we don't know about. So maybe play it safe and abort uh, was essentially the implicit message. So perverse in terms of reaction in every other case in American society when there's social need, we step up and respond to it, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's exactly what we're doing with the virus now and recognizing that we need more ventilators. We need more respirator masks. We need uh, American industry and, and the most uh, privileged to step up and to serve in this moment. And we should be asking the same thing of Planned Parenthood and the others, which is, you know, if you really care about uh, choice, which is what you say, why not provide some? And those choices absolutely would have to involve in a big way Things like adoption, making that heroic choice, uh, foster care, and these other things. So it's just, a, it, it underscores sort of, I think, you know, as you said, Catherine, the, the juvenility of our moment, that no one, you know, in a position of power, you know, the media so often holds itself up, you know, we speak truth to power. And no one is seriously asking the folks who actually have the most power why they aren't actually doing that much for those who are most vulnerable. It's, it's a frustrating time. And 
I, I really have been, I guess, hoping against hope for, for a while now and, and, and trying to do my, my tiny part. There should be common ground on foster care and adoption. I don't um, understand why we can't be adult enough <laughs> to say, look, we disagree on this issue, this very important issue to, to both of us. Um, but but let's work on on what we can agree on. I think um, your voice on that has been the critical. Kids shouldn't yeah. be it, it, um, languishing in foster care. Can we agree that children need homes? Let's let's start there. Let's put this to a, uh, the side for a moment. One of the most encouraging things that I've seen um, since I've been talking about these issues more is um, I had an event after the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast a year or so ago. Um, and, um, Walter Olson from, from the Cato Institute, um, came to it. He was sitting in the front row and, and he, he is, um, married to a man and they've adopted a child, um, adopted a child a long ago. He's, he's an older teenager now. And what he said to me was, look, yeah, we can, we can agree to disagree, <laughs> you know, um, on even some fundamentals, right. To our lives here. Um, but, but children need more choices rather than less. It gets to the choice, um, um, a point that you were just making, Tom. Um, and when we're talking about planned parenthood, yeah, like, can we just, can we just agree to talk about adoption and foster care? Can we talk about the issues where we can make progress and agree that this will be, um, a betterment to, um, to lives? That's right. Yeah. It's like so often these, these moments of, uh, of contention and of gridlock get kind of written off by people who say, oh, well, that's just politics. And, you know, it's like, no, actually, politics, you know, good politics is the art of, of being an effective compromiser in pursuit of, of the good, in pursuit of justice, right? It involves statesmanship. It involves uh, virtues of prudence and, and awareness that, you know, uh, no one uh, is going to get everything that they want 100% of the time. And so then good politics is actually providing uh, governance and stability in line with our constitutional order. Um, and so it's like it's not a winner-take-all uh, situation. I think we see that uh, sort of playing out in, um, you know, the, the sort of takedown that uh, a big abortion finally achieved with uh, the defeat of Dan Lipinski in his primary race yeah. in the yeah. Illinois 3rd District. You know, it's like the, the smallest dissent, the smallest no against a culture of abortion, for instance, in the form of Dan Lipinski, a, a great, great pro-life Democrat, was seen as such an existential threat you know, Noah, I know you were speaking to this earlier. What do you t tell us about that? Yeah, you know, you you have the Democratic Party, right? It's one of the major parties in the United States. It's, you know, there's more members even than the GOP. And they demand such ideological conformity, especially when it comes to this one issue, right, of abortion, abortion for any reason, at any stage in pregnancy, at any time. And the people like Congressman Lipinski, who's been in Congress for something like 16 years, the fact – and he's a fairly progressive Democrat on almost every other issue. But the fact that he made the principled stand based on his religion and, and, and other and, – and just the way that he sees the biology of humans in the womb, that he was not going to cave to the party bosses and he's going to continue to be pro-life made it to where now for two cycles – this happened to him in 2018, but he beat it back and he lost this time – all of these national groups pouring tens of millions of dollars against him to beat him in a primary, you know, to win 30,000 votes in suburban Illinois, They're, they are terrified of pro-life Democrats. And, I mean, I'm very sad about Congressman Lipinski, but, you know, Catherine, I'm interested to hear what you think sort of about where – the, the Democrats are on abortion in general. I am encouraged by people like John Bell Edwards in Louisiana and, you know, State Senator Katrina Jackson, who's who was the, the big focus of the big abortion related Supreme Court case. Where is the party heading and why do they seem to sort of make these almost illogical choices to box out pro-lifers from, you know, being a part of the conversation in their party? I think illogical is exactly the word. I remember um, at the last presidential election, just being kind of um, flabbergasted that um, Hillary Clinton wasn't a better politician. Um, and yeah, it would have been totally disingenuous on one hand. Um, but uh, the, there, if, if it were her husband running, I can't help but think she would have toned it down on abortion because there were um, 
there were people who were looking for an excuse to not vote for Donald Trump. And if she had toned it down a little bit, she may have won some Catholic voters. I'm thinking of, you know, Catholic voters who, who voted Democrat um, for for uh, for a long while until uh, the party, until Ronald Reagan or to be, be, until the, the party became uh, too radical on social, social issues. If she had toned it down with a, with a Catholic running as as uh, her running mate, um, I think she would have had more of a shot. And um, but I do think there's there's something of like the last stand happening right now because, you know, science um, tells the truth, right? Sonograms tell the truth. The logic is is um, becoming clearer and clearer. And so I do think that you find Democrats who are wedded to the ideology of, um, of abortion in the party um, just making dumb decisions. <laughs> and I think it's dumb not to leave room in that party for for pro-lifers. It would be a smart political move. Yeah, um, you, you, you're, you're, you're completely right because they're making the choice to kind of like not compete in certain places correct. like here in Missouri. Like even like state rep and state senate seats now, the, the, the party is trying to prevent any pro-lifers from winning the Democratic nomination. And it's like, fine, you're not going to win outside of any the big urban areas. You're, you're just conceding a super majority to the other party and like how how does that help you in your priorities and if you have somewhere like louisiana it's just the culture you know you're not going to be as radical in louisiana as you can get away with in new york you know um and um but i um i i do think and i have to say you know Joe Biden is one of the most disappointing politicians of my lifetime because <laughs> he um, he knows better. And, you know, I, I, I think it was you, Tom, um, before talking about, you know, how we'll look back and think, like, why did we ever why did we ever make the little sisters of the poor talk about contraception for Pete's sake? Right. And Joe Biden himself, according to a report from Jake Tapper, was in a meeting in the White House with Cecile Richards and and the president. And he said, so, so tell me again why we're picking a fight with nuns. Of course, so, so he has like the right instinct. Um, but of course, then he falls in line when when everybody tells him what the what the marching orders are. Um, if he had more, you know, if he had a more backbone on some of these issues, um, he he really could could lead in that party. But you see, you see how he's reversed himself on the Hyde Amendment, but can't even commit to that um, because he really he just he um, he is. Uh, is surrendered to the party on on this issue, and it's just so disappointing because I I do think he knows better. Um, I think he 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 could be a leader in the party, but obviously he's chosen not to be. We can always hope that we're surprised uh, as the campaigns go on that you know maybe you know depending on how things go in the fall, if Joe Biden captures the presidency, maybe he'll come out as just a long term pro life sleeper agent, you know, in the Democratic Party who returns to his to his position in the seventies. <laughs> He said, well, that's the thing, right? Um, so, so many of the Democrats who have been around for a long time, they, they were pro-life at one point. I remember one, one year, maybe in the early 90s, every Democrat who was running, um, I think to, to, to a man, um, had been pro-life at, at one point. Jesse Jackson had been pro-life at right. one point. They had all been pro-life at one point in their, in their, in their lives. And, um, I, I certainly I certainly uh, pray that 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 the reversal happens in the right direction again. I remember um, Archbishop Chaphew, who until recently was was the um, the uh, ordinary the Catholic ordinary in in, in Philadelphia. He um, he said in an interview I don't know maybe twelve years ago or something. He said if you had asked me in the in the nineteen sixties which party was going to be the party of legal abortion, I would have never thought it would be the Democrats because there were too many uh, Catholics in in the party. Um, but but the the Catholics I, I I will I will be the first to admit that the Catholics um, were were not leaders on this, and I think our politics would be. Um, a lot different if, uh, if if Catholics really really fought on this issue and 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 we didn't and, and it, it's a, a, the detriment to, to us all. It's amazing too. You look at, at somebody like an Archbishop Chaput, who's uh, you know pegged as as a super conservative, right? 
Um, but he's spoken publicly, you know, about the fact he's like, you know, as a young man, you know, I, I was a, a pro-life young man and I campaigned for JFK and Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, you know, we we're talking earlier about, you know, uh, the youngest Americans not having even, you know, a living memory of 9-11, uh, which I know for us, you know, we, we do have that. Um, but, you know, for that context of, of, you know, you might be asking yourself, have things really changed over the past half century or so? Or is this just kind of more of the kind of hype that we have in politics? And it's like... Things have changed. I mean, you look at, yeah, at, at the extremism and, uh, you know, you look at the extremism of, of New York versus Louisiana, you know, and it's like but differing even, positions aren't, you know, John Bell Edwards is not telling pro-choice Louisianans to get out of his state. But Andrew Cuomo right. is telling pro-life New Yorkers right. to get out, you know. So which extremism even, is the worst? Even about New York, I have to say, I as a kid growing up, I loved politics. I was a total geek. One of the politicians who I had a lot of respect for was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, um, who was a liberal Democrat, um, who who um, identified the problem of fatherlessness, for one thing, um, which uh, um, was a cultural leader in, in, in that regard. Yeah, the and, social implications um, of family, yeah. Correct. Correct. And um, he also, um, when it came down to partial birth abortion, he said, um, this is something like infanticide. That was leadership. Now, that also didn't, wasn't, first of all, he, he was respected. Um, so he could lead in his party. He could say something like that. Um, but the Democratic Party wasn't as far gone as, as it is now. Um, and, um, and, and so I bring that up because even, even in, in somewhere in New York, um, you know, Andrew Cuomo wouldn't say something like that, right. To the, to the contrary, um, the party has, has changed a lot since, um, since just the days of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who, who you're too young to remember. And I think, uh, <laughs> Tom and, and, and Noah, I think too. Um, but, but I certainly, I certainly remember him. So that that's, uh, that's in our lifetimes here. You know, what would you think that, uh, you know, you worked alongside William F. Buckley for many years at National Review and, and broadly, and, and Buckley was, a, you know, an incredible figure in the 20th century American, uh, in, in 20th century American life period, but especially in American conservatism. What do you think he would make of, of the moment we're in now as, as pro-lifers? <laughs> um. I, you know, I said to um, somebody when we were still allowed to go into the office, I think last Wednesday or something, um, I, I said to, to two of my colleagues, I said, I know we do this all the time, but this was about coronavirus. And I, I, um, I would love the Bill Buckley columns on this right now, <laughs> trying to uh, make sense of, of everything. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I have that thought, um, a couple of times a week. I, I, I want to read the, the Bill Buckley column on, on Dan Lipinski, you know, um, uh, what would he make of, of all of this? I mean, I, I, one of the games we try not to play is what would Bill say? Um, but we, we know what he did say. And, um, he was, uh, he was very clear, clear on abortion. And I think, um, he would be talking about the logic of, um, of all of this, um, in terms of, of where the democratic party is. And, I have no idea what he would um, be saying about Donald Trump, but one thing that um, I'll say that that may be unpopular with um, some of your your listeners, but I think it's something that we have to be honest and and talk about. You know, sometimes um, what um, what I see in some, you know, frankly, at the March for Life this year, um, at some of the the more conservative events that that are pro life, there there's almost the this. Um, <sighs> there's there's a putting politics in a place that it quite shouldn't be um and treating politicians and i'm thinking of donald trump in particular as as sort of a savior and i think we have to be really careful about that um really we have to be grateful to um to a politician for for when he's doing and saying the right things um, but we also have to be careful about um, what, how we're saying, how we're saying things, and and also being, being um, realistic about the um, the picture that someone who doesn't agree with us is seeing. Um, you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is, I'm grateful to Donald Trump for Supreme Court justices. I'm grateful to him for for a number of things. But I also know 
what people who aren't grateful for those things um, see when they when they look at Donald Trump. And and we're not talking about this week and coronavirus. You know, we're talking about the bigger picture here. And I think we pro-lifers have to be careful about that. Um, and um, and always wanting to um, to reach out to as many people as possible. We want to be able to have conversations with people who um, do you think that Donald Trump is a bad character in in um, in the American scene. Um, you, you can disagree with him on that, or you can you can agree with him on that, but be grateful for some of the things that he's doing, and 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 frankly, be praying that you know conversions are real, and. Um, so uh, and I, I do wonder if this coronavirus moment, um, uh, again, is is a possibility for some some healing in those regards. I mean, for the last four or five years, what have we been hearing, especially especially the last three plus four four years? I mean, families um, breaking apart, friendships ending over Donald Trump. Maybe some of that can be healed um, when when we're at a point where, um, you know, politics isn't everything. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's like uh, the, the sort of impulse, I, one of the buildings I walk by on the way to, uh, to work along M Street in D.C. is, uh, is a gym um, on the ground floor, and they've got this giant uh, mural of, uh, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, you know, in, in her kind of judicial <laughs> gowns, but with boxing gloves on and it's, it's a boxing gym. Right. And they've, it's, you know, then, uh, they've got a, a thing of like Biggie Smalls is behind her, you know, with the cash, you know, from the fight or whatever. And so it's like, you know, Ginsburg is there and it's just, this like, it's become this kind of cultural thing, right. To like deify Ginsburg, okay. if you're of a, a particular persuasion. And you're right. I think it's like, we want to make sure that the same thing on the other end doesn't happen with, with Trump. Um, yeah, and it's like, maybe we can I, I, come I, together and recognize it's weird. I, I think I'm hearing someone saying, my Lord and Savior, Donald Trump, like, no, stop. Right. Stop, please stop. Like, um, take a few steps back here. And it is, it is, I, I like that, the comparison to um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because there is something similar there. And I have to say about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there was, there was a documentary, I think, I think it was a CNN documentary, or at least I watched it on CNN about her life. And the story of her marriage, I just think is one of the most beautiful. I mean, she seems to, to be a lovely human being and I understand why Antonin Scalia loved her, you know, and I think their relationship is something that is um, akin to a lot of the relationships Bill Buckley had. Um, one of, um, one of his dearest friends was John Kenneth Galbraith, the, the liberal economist. And, um, after he died, I didn't know the story until after he died, his son, Christopher, Bill's son, Christopher Buckley, um, the, the famous writer, he, um, he told the story of John Kenneth Galbraith dying, um, on his deathbed, um, um, and for a number of months was, was suffering and, um, Bill would, would every week be at, by his bedside. And, and even, even when John Cal Kenneth Bal Gal Galbraith had no idea who, who was sitting next to him potentially, um, he, he would, he would go there and, and that, those are the kind of friendships we need to, to be, um, celebrating and nourishing and having, you know? That's right. Yeah. It touches back to that, that year with the mystics, right? It's like, if we can't transcend you know, what we see just in the material world, the political world, uh, you know, the utilitarian world, that sort of attitude of like, you know, yeah, what can you do for me? Then we'll decide whether we can be quote unquote friends or not. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it, it gets back to, uh, if, if, you know, a great, a great kind of book on this subject, an introductory book to it. It's, it's, it's heavy, but it's foundational as, you know, Alistair McIntyre's writings on this. You can look him up on YouTube. You can look up, you know, his, his famous book after virtue, sort of a study of, of moral theory, uh, his his book on ethics, you know, kind of getting at the question of you know why are why are we moral creatures? You know, let's let's ask this very foundational question and try to figure that out. You know, what what kind of makes us creatures that think we can assert things like human rights, for instance? You know, where does that come from? And uh, so asking those things can maybe help us get out of this moment where yeah we get into these like uh, ultimately takes us down this road where we get into these just factional, uh, fruitless camps where it becomes sort of like you know, pick your fighter, you know, uh, team A or team B. Well, Catherine, something we do every show is our shot of gratitude. So we just share something that we are grateful for. So especially in this moment of pandemic, I think we've sort of been doing that with each other throughout the episode. Um, <laughs> but if there's anything in particular that you're grateful for, we'd love to hear it. 
Well, I have to I have to say I'm sorry to do a Catholic thing again, but but as this coronavirus thing was getting worse and worse, we had um, St. Patrick's Day and St. Joseph's Day, and I was listening to um, the the homily at the um, the famous St. Patrick's Day Mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral, which this year had no one in the congregation, um, except for those of us watching it live stream. The uh, bishop who was giving the homily, Bishop Whelan, said that um, he's an Irish kid from New York, and and he said, you know, um, the thing the thing about this is. Um, this year with the bars not being open and everything, it's not Patty's day, you know, it's become <laughs> Patty's day, but it's St. Patrick's day, you know, it's about Jesus Christ. It's not, not about green beer and, right. and, and Irish soda bread. And, um, and I've, uh, I've been grateful for that because it's, it's put a little perspective on things. And St. Joseph, um, Catholics think of as the protector of the church. And it's, that's not just a Catholic thing. I mean, when you think about the foster father of Jesus, he was, he was protecting, he was protecting Christianity, you know, um, in, in, um, in its infancy, um, quite literally. And so I, I think that's, that's something to be grateful for. That's awesome. Yeah, Noah, how about you? This week I've been really thankful just for sort of the hospitality uh, shown by a lot of people in my life. Uh, you know, me and my wife usually live in uh, the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and we thought maybe we'd like to do quarantine back in Missouri where neither of us lives, and both of our families, especially my my in-law's family, uh, have been extremely hospitable and accommodating as we hang out with them for uh, potentially the next few weeks. So I'm really, really thankful for their their kindness and patience on that. You're in a great part. You're in uh, Josh Hawley territory, yeah. That's right. You know, the Josh Hawley, the Josh Hawley, the one who came up with the idea of potentially sending Americans a thousand dollar check. It's going to happen. <laughs> not Yang Gang, huh? No, not not Yang Gang yet. You know, t- targeted uh, just during the crisis. Uh, t- Tom, what's something you're grateful for? You know, I'm thinking back uh, as, as we're talking a little bit about um, life and, and William F. Buckley and, and also just, uh, you know, being grateful for the, the moments that we're in. I'm thinking back, you know, when I was in college, I kind of discovered, you know, Buckley wrote, what was it, something like 50 books, Catherine? is an incredible amount. Yeah, yeah, a little over that. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, he's got he's got books all over the place uh, across topic and, and a great type. A great spy novel series. A yes. great spy yes. novel series. That's right. Uh, but the books that I— Blackford I, Oaks, I think. The the books I loved yes. in uh, in college were uh, were especially his uh, his sailing books. Um, you know, my mm-hmm. grandfather was a was a sailor uh, in the 1950s. He had a thirty foot Tahiti catch. He sailed with uh, with a fraternity brother of his from Penn State um, around the world, and uh, and so that kind of spoke to me in that way. Uh, Buckley's Buckley's books were great. Atlantic High was one of them. Airborne, uh, Racing okay. Through Paradise, uh, Windfall. Um, there may have been one other, but. Um, you know, racing I through do. paradise, especially, is just the, the, they they are they are the sort of stories that take you to where it is, right? It's like you you can you can smell the 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 uh, the, the sea, and you can you can pretend that you're on the yeah. deck. It's just incredible. And I do tell people um, that if it, so, if if you're new to Bill Buckley, if you're just listening to this and are new to him, um, miles gone by is the books to start with. I think um, unless unless sailing is your thing, because I, I do think those are. <laughs> Atlantic High is probably his most beautiful book, um, but Miles Gone By is a good primer. Um, that's the closest he ever came to doing an autobiography. It's a collection of of um, some of his favorite essays that he did, sort of um, uh, that were important to him with with um, fresh intros. Um, and I'm partial to Near My God, which was his book on faith. They're yeah, they're so good, especially yeah. Uh, I, I think of I need to pick that one up. I I recently read Catherine the uh, the collection of obituaries that he wrote that oh, came yeah. out a year or two ago, and I was just blown yeah. away. Yeah, so good. Yeah, I yeah forget, that's such a beautiful book. I forget who said it, but uh, a, a poet said sort of that the best poetry sort of it seems to become what it describes. Right, mm. and uh, you know it, it embodies the thing that it seeks to to describe, and I think that's what what Buckley does. You write in Atlantic High, and, and in so much of his writing in general. Um, so anyway, things I'm grateful for, but also things that maybe can uh, can help uh, help get us through quarantine, or if you're listening to this later, can uh, just help you enjoy the summer. Um, so, Catherine, Noah, thank you both for joining us uh, today and for this great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> All right, take care. All right, if you enjoyed our conversation today, please give Life, Liberty, and Law a rating on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars, rate the show, and leave a review. And let a friend know you've discovered the show. 
If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, email us, life at aul.org. I'm Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.